This is the Boston Book Festival Virtual Edition. I'm Debbie Porter, founder of the BBF, and you are listening to one in our series of four audio memoir sessions. I hope you enjoy hearing from these wonderful authors, and I hope to see you next year in person. Hello, and welcome to the 2020 Boston Book Festival panel, Extraordinary Beginnings. I'm Richard Hoffman, author of two memoirs, Half the House and Love and Fury, along with several collections of poetry and short fiction. And I will be talking with three wonderful memoirists, Megan Margulies, author of My Captain America, a granddaughter's memoir of a legendary comic book artist. Honor Moore, author of Our Revolution, a mother and daughter at mid-century, and Mikkel Jolet, author of Hollywood Park. All three of these books are available for sale at bookshop.org. And now it is my great pleasure to welcome Megan Margulies to talk about her memoir, My Captain America, a granddaughter's memoir of a legendary comic book artist. He lived in Midtown Manhattan, 40 blocks south of my family's apartment, a smile and nod to the doorman, up the elevator, and down to the end of the popcorn-walled hallway, brought you to apartment 6M. M for moron, he used to say. Since I was very young, my love blazed a bright path toward my grandfather, or as I called him once I could talk, Daddy Joe. He created Captain America, The Fly, Fighting American, Sick Magazine, and Romance Comics, among others. Most people remember him as a true comics legend. To me, Joe Simon was the man who loved to have a cigar every night a fan blowing the smoke over a drawing table spattered with ink and paint and out his studio apartment window. Even before my family's apartment became too much to bear, he was a calming force amid a city of millions. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start by simply sketching in the story a bit. There's definitely a lot in the book for comic book lovers. It follows the career of my grandfather, Joe Simon, who co-created Captain America. But at the heart of the book is a coming-of-age story about growing up in New York City in the 80s and 90s and just running to him for a sense of peace and calm and showing how, in a way, he was my own personal superhero. This carries on throughout my whole life as I grow up and I get married and I have children, how I take my grandfather, I take him along with me, even after he dies, to just offer me that sense of grounding and peace. I'm really interested as a grandfather myself, what you have to say about that relationship between grandfather and grandchild. Even as a child, you know, I often wondered if our closeness and just the power of it was abnormal in some way because I had many friends who loved their grandparents, but there wasn't this bond that was just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Like my relationship with him was just such a huge part of my life as much so as one of my parents. And I think I was very lucky to have that. And I often wonder if it was just because we live near each other and I was the first 
grandchild born, but we always had a somewhat different relationship than the other grandchildren had with him. And maybe it's just, this is how life is. Sometimes two people just gravitate toward each other and are just bonded in a special way. My mom used to call us the honeymooners because we were like an old married couple. (laughs) We were just always so content with each other. And it's clear in the book that Daddy Joe, your grandfather, loves New York, and you do not. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very dangerous thing to say that you don't love New York, so I I need to clarify that. (laughs) There aren't any t-shirts like that. (laughs) I kind of love. I don't heart New York. I don't heart New York. I (laughs) heart-ish. It's where I'm from. It's made me who I am, even if that is maybe more anxious of a person than Mm. other people. The root of it, I I do have a lot of love for New York. But as a child and as a teenager, I was very ready to move away from the city. I always say it's sort of like we just weren't meant to be. I needed something a little bit more calm. You mentioned the John Hughes movies Mm -hmm. giving you a sense of what would be a better life. That just sounded like the ideal I didn't even have lockers at my school. Just the scene with the hallways and the lockers and Mm -hmm. having your own bedroom and two different floors of where you live sounded amazing. Just room, having room. room. Yeah, that's all I really wanted. Space, you know. Right. Daddy Joe, he ran there the first chance he could get. And for him and for many people who are transplants, New York uh, is where dreams come true. I know as a memoirist, I've often been asked this question, which I find despicable. And so I'm not going to ask you this. No, no, I'll I'll tell you what it is, but I'm not asking (laughs) you, believe me. What's so special about your life that we should want to read about it? Don't you ask yourself that same question? I mean, I've asked you do, but that's what leads you to writing a successful memoir, which is really about our life. For example, I would say, in many ways, this is a book about coming to terms with mortality. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that whole arc of the book, you know, the seeds are planted there as in childhood for an understanding of what the risk is of loving someone, that there's always this risk that you're going to lose them. Right. And eventually you do. We are all contending with the question of, dare I love this person because I may lose them. Right. And it's a kind of courage to take the leap and say, okay, uh, I understand what's at stake here, but I I love this person. It's just so beautifully done in the book, the way you've structured it. You know, I always tell people Captain America is sort of like the family's coat of arms. Mm -hmm. It just brings us so much peace and strength and We're so lucky to have that. Thank God he was an artist. Thank God he was a successful artist. Because now we have this character that is obviously not going anywhere. You know, I like to think of it in a spiritual way sometimes. Like he's watching over me. Or, you know, if I put his picture or one of my grandfather's drawings on the wall of my daughter's room, it's like he's watching over her. You know, I had not seen a Captain America comic since I was a kid. I'm not coming to the, the memoir as a comic book fan, but I am now a Daddy Joe fan. Oh. 
you've honored your grandfather in the writing of this book. You know, he's very present in it. I kept thinking of his ethics. His politics could probably be summed up in that one line, uh, you can't take shit from anybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you put that next to his drawing of Captain yeah. America slugging Hitler in the jaw, yeah. which he then translates into right. slugging Osama bin Laden in the jaw. Right. And what those things have in common is you don't take shit from anybody. Right. Made me think about what's at stake in our own moment. We need Captain America. Right. <laughs> to stand up to homegrown Nazis. And you do write a bit about the pushback that that drawing of Captain America slugging Hitler received in the early years or before the United States entered the Second World War. Uh, and the book reminds us of this, that there were plenty of homegrown uh, Nazis and Nazi sympathizers in the United States. And it seems as if they've never gone away. They just go underground right. for periods until uh, they're invited back to the surfaces. You know, he was modeling a kind of quiet courage for you all through those years. I like know. that quiet courage. That's. I think that is especially artists who draw superheroes. That's sort of their specialty. And as you mentioned, when he... When him and Jack Kirby created Captain America, you know, there was the pushback and they ended up having to have police officers at the door of their their office building um, to protect mm. them. And, you know, and then when he he drew the cover with Osama bin Laden getting punched, it made my mom nervous. But uh, sure. he felt safe in his his little studio apartment lair. Nobody was touching him. It was really nice having not only an artist for a grandfather, but an artist who created a character that so many people can look to for maybe a sense of bravery or feel that they have some power in an awful situation. It's beautifully and gracefully done. Go to bookshop.org and purchase copy of My Captain America, a granddaughter's memoir of a legendary comic book artist. It's a terrific read, and it will make you think about your life. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Honor Moore's previous memoir, The Bishop's Daughter, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Los Angeles Times Favorite Book of the Year. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The American Scholar, and many other magazines. She's a well-regarded poet, a playwright, and a professor of creative writing at the New School in New York City, where she makes her home. Yes, her death was a catastrophe. Each of her children thrown into individual sorrow, into our lives, now, without the attentiveness of her companionship. She bought a blue suede dress to wear when she visited President Kennedy. When he was killed, she passed the dress to me, and it was stolen from the college costume shop where I had taken it to be altered. I'm sorry, they said, as if what I had lost was only a dress. There is a woman in white coming toward me along the narrow road. She is taller than I am, and she has black hair. I can't make out her face. 
Welcome, Honor. Hi there. Our Revolution is a big sort of life and times book in its expanse. Yes. When I published The Bishop's Daughter about my father, my mother made several what in TV you'd call guest appearances. My readers and friends kept saying things like, you should write a book about your mother. And I had written a great deal about my mother when she died at the age of 50, when I was 27 in 1973. And I thought I was been there, done that, except for the fact that in her will, she left me her unfinished writing. Now, she had published a very successful book, what we would now call a memoir in 1968, called The People on Second Street, and written many feature pieces, what we would now call creative nonfiction essays in the Washington Post and elsewhere. There were six cartons or eight cartons and things kept arriving and arriving and arriving. And I was meant to do something with this material, including a deathbed partial memoir. And uh, the reason she'd left me her unfinished writing was that I was just having my first publication. My first poem was coming out called My Mother's Mustache, a long sort of epic poem about my primal inheritance from my mother, which was a scourge of brunettes, uh, facial hair. <laughs> so there I was, was I to begin my own writing or finish hers? And I chose my own writing and I carried these cartons around for years. And I looked at them a little bit. And when I wrote a biography of her mother, the artist Margaret Sargent, I looked at them. And when I wrote The Bishop's Daughter, I used some of the correspondence. But I hadn't really looked at the material deeply. And what I realized at a certain point when a particular friend was nudging me was that I'd written about her when I was in my 20s and early 30s. And now I was in my late 60s and my mother had died at 50. And let's say I take me five years to finish the book, actually took seven, but I thought, oh my God, she was 50. I'm in my 70s or will be soon. And I could be her mother. She was 21 when I was born. And I mm -hmm. suddenly had a very different sense of who she was in relation to me. And I got interested. And then I realized that I was going to use her writing. You know, I had this idea of weaving her writing through the book, which I have done in italics. And because in my poetry, because in poetry, one is always kind of part of the craft of poetry is getting difficult stuff smoothly or appropriately into a poem, I was used to this kind of struggle. So I began and what happened was I actually got to know my mother and uh, saw her change from a privileged uh, Bostonian girl who knew nothing, very sheltered, white, upper-class upbringing with the exception of a very radical, uh, what we would now call homeschooling, homeschooler, a, a tutor in those days. And um, she was curious and she was also an obsessive student and her life led her to be the first 
woman in her family to actually go to college. She went to Vassar for a year and then Barnard, and this was the 30s and the early 40s, and things were happening. And she found herself studying race in an anthropology class taught by a disciple of Franz Boas, and she found herself studying Mexican history in a graduate class with a disciple of Emma Goldman's in a multiracial class, very unusual for the time. And then there was a courtship with my father. And then there was into the world and into the post-war world and meeting Dorothy Day, becoming with my father interested in working with the poor. And uh, that began a kind of extraordinary life. And um, then came the 60s and the civil rights movement. And then came reading Betty Friedan. And then came the minute she had finished having her nine children, whom she always wanted to have. She wrote a book. Then she died tragically at 50. I mean, there's often a kind of meeting with a parent in adulthood a parent we've struggled with and mm-hmm. a reconciliation or resolution that comes with being adults together, with becoming contemporaries. Right. Uh, you and your mother really only had a short time to be women together before she passed away. Do you think it's fair to say that writing this book has afforded you the opportunity to extend that process? Absolutely. It was also getting to know someone who had a formidable intellect who had an amazing gift to connect with other people who were different from herself and who had an evolving politics, which had a profoundly moral sort of depth to it. She was involved in the McCarthy, the Jean McCarthy campaign and knew him because of Washington and traveled sort of in the inner circle of of the campaign and was in the Hilton Hotel when the students were being tear gassed outside. In fact, she herself was tear gassed. And there's a passage in which she describes the police coming into the McCarthy campaign headquarters and beating up the people there. Mm. It was traumatic for her. And in an oral history for the McCarthy campaign, she talked about how She said, for me and my older children, even for my younger children in a different way, it became clear to us that our private lives and our political lives were one thing. Now, that's a kind of early statement of what soon became a cliche, the personal is political, but it shows a kind of ongoing moral search and a sense of moral discovery. In many ways, this is a history book. I think it does what the best memoirs do. It situates the story in the context of its historical moment and by implication, its relevance to our own situation. Another starting point for this entire passionate inquiry that's resulted in in the book is this moment when your mother blurts just as you're leaving the family place in the Adirondacks. I'm having some problems with my marriage, <laughs> uh, which in oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, moment, yeah. Yeah, that moment was so confusing and painful and complex. It's a kind of boundary violation between mother and daughter, but it was also 
an invitation and a challenge. And yes. it seems to have led you to this deep understanding of not only your mother, but yourself. Absolutely. I was so angry. Mm. And I got, I left and I got to where I was going and I wrote her this letter, which I still have. <laughs> it's a manifesto of uh, a daughter wishing to have her freedom. It was a moment. I mean, you know, we didn't, as it were, get back together for quite a while. So much happened in our lives that it was way more complicated than just, gee, I'm mad, I'm furious at you, and then we have a talk and everything is fine. The book is shot through with integrity. We feel that we are accompanying you in the process of this inquiry. You're using research and imagination and memory tumbling over one another and trying to bring your mother back. I mean, yes. it's really the Orphic quest, you know. Yes. Um, what would you say to, to younger writers who are struggling to come to terms with the intergenerational inheritance that they're trying to write about? I have a former student, a young man, a novelist, whose mother was a radical second wave feminist very complicated woman. He came to me and he said, Honor, what you, how do I get going on this? And I said, do you have letters? And he, he said, oh yes, I just have tons oh. and tons of letters and diaries. I said, you have to learn them. Well, how do you suggest I do that? I said, well, I did a lot of typing. And uh, recently he wrote me and he said, you know, I'm almost finished typing my mother's letters and diaries this is two years later. And you were right to ask me to do that because it really has given me deeper insight into her. Mm -hmm. I would say that for people who have letters and diaries of a parent, really get to know them, you know, Xerox them, mark them up, type them, read them aloud into something, then write the hotspots. Mm. We all have memories. And don't worry about where in the story you are at that point. This is pre-story because you're going to right. discover the story. You don't know the story. A memoir is not, oh, I'm going to write down everything that happened. You do not know as the writer, you do not know the story until you write the book, until you investigate your memory. Because behind each memory that you share at a cocktail party or with your new lover or whatever is a memory that you've forgotten and that you will find if you allow it to come to you. Vivian Gornick says that, you know, you measure a, a memoir by the depth of its inquiry. Right. And I think that that's what gives you depth is uh, when you're willing to entertain the counterfactual or the, the reasons why you misremembered something or you explore the difference between one sibling's memories and another and, and try to account for those differences. Right. Students say, oh my God, how do you remember what people said or what things looked like? I actually don't believe that memory is unreliable. I actually take issue with that because I think it dishonors memory. Mm -hmm. I think that one must be faithful to one's memory and if you somehow, quote unquote, remember that the World Trade Towers came down on September 13th, you know, obviously you're wrong. You know, you check the facts. But 
beyond that, you know, my memory and the memories of my eight brothers and sisters are obviously going to be different, but that doesn't mean they aren't there for us to be true to. You know, we're writing in a genre that's not governed by the truth, it's governed by honesty, you know, and that has its own demands. Exactly. It's not a question of is memory reliable or not reliable, you know, it's just a question of interrogating the past, really questioning it, trying to have the opportunity to have lived your life more deeply after you've written the book. I think of memory as a kind of dimension of reality. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that I get to go to, you know, and in that dimension, time is very peculiar. I mean, sometimes the past is more present than the present and it's very mysterious. It's a little like dreaming. Yes. I'm not contained between my hat and my boot soles, as the poet said. I love that. Yeah. Uh, This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation for me. Me too, Richard. Wonderful to meet you. I hope that everyone will go out and buy the book, Our Revolution, A Mother and Daughter at Mid-Century. Well, thank you so much. It's now my great pleasure to welcome Mikel Jolet to talk about his memoir, Hollywood Park, which was published concurrent with the release of his album by the same name by his band, Airborne Toxic Event. Mikel, welcome. Hi, how you doing? It's nice to be here. Let's start by simply sketching in the story a bit. And I'd like you to do it because I'm afraid I'd spoil it for readers, especially with my enthusiasm for the book. I don't want to give anything away. So the story, I I like to think of my book as really a, a book about growing up. It starts in one place, which is a cult, where my parents chose to go in the late 60s. My father went there to get clean off heroin. It was a drug rehabilitation program that turned into a sort of society that turned into a cult called Synanon. He had gotten out of Chino prison, had a heroin addiction, and went there to get clean, which he did. Um, And he always said that it saved his life, which I think is true. Uh, And then my mom was a free speech activist from Berkeley, was at UC Berkeley, got a master's there, you know, was part of the sit-ins and all that kind of stuff. And, And she was part of what they called the lifestylers. There were the dope fiends and the lifestylers. And the squares is another word they had, you know, there's this really rich lexicon for the cult. <laughs> you know, they met there and they fell in love and um, they had my brother and I. So the cult turned violent and started doing some really crazy things, forced marriages, forced vasectomies, forced abortions, violence against people trying to leave, attempted murder, all these things, stockpiling guns, doing kind of all the nutty stuff that cults start to do. Uh, and then, you know, the one very ominous decision for my brother and I is they also took all the children from their parents when they were six months old and they put them into an orphanage where they were raised by strangers. And we grew up for almost the first four years of my life, first seven years of my brother's life, not really knowing what a mom was, what a dad was, what a family was. We were always told everyone was our our mom and dad. Every adult in Sinanon was our mom and dad. And the book begins with one of my earliest, if not my earliest memory, which is the day that we we left Sinanon with this woman with a shaved head my mom had these very striking, still does, very striking hazel green eyes and Dutch cheeks and this shaved head. And she woke me up early in the morning and said, we have to leave because it's not safe. And we escaped. Hmm. Do you want to read that scene maybe to kick us off? Yeah, sure. So this is just from the very beginning of the book. And this is uh, Hollywood Park Chapter 1 called Ancient Cities to the East. We were never young. We were just too afraid of ourselves. 
No one told us who we were or what we were or where all our parents went. They would arrive like ghosts, visiting us for a morning and afternoon. They would sit with us or walk around the grounds to laugh or cry or toss us in the air while we screamed. Then they'd disappear again for weeks, for months, for years, leaving us alone with our memories and dreams, our questions and confusion, the wide open places where we were free to run like wild horses in the night. It happened all at once. My brother and I sitting naked in the bath, playing with our toy boats, listening to the music and the sound of muffled voices from the next room. We are swaddled in red and green wool blankets and readied for sleep. Story time, pajamas, the rubbing of tired eyes. Good night, canyon. Good night, mountain. Good night, building. Good night, stars. Crayons are put away, cubbies cleaned, teeth brushed. I drift to sleep and am rattled awake, surprised to see my mother's face with her shaved head, her hazel green eyes, her round Dutch cheeks and crooked yellow coffee-stained teeth. Hi, Goo. Wake up. We have to leave. It's not safe here. I've been told this woman's name is Mom. It seems like really your father comes to understand what a family is. Um, your mother really never does. She's not able to. Yeah, I think that's right. I have to say that throughout the book, the lines that kept ringing in my head were William Blake's lines, the angel who presided at my birth said, little creature formed of joy and mirth, go, love without the help of anything on earth. <laughs> That's heartbreaking. <laughs> the struggle at the heart of this book is to understand, you know, to come out of this void and understand perhaps what family is. And in order to get there, there's this massive confusion, which is already there for children anyway, you know. Right. The sort of do or die, become or perish mandate at the heart of your life growing up is what drives this book. I'm crazy about this memoir, and I have been teaching memoir for 20 years in three different graduate programs, so I've probably read more memoirs than anybody on the planet. <laughs> and this is right at the top of my list, particularly because you capture the consciousness of a child and a child's confusion so well that it is irresistible in terms of identifying with you. Well, that's wonderful praise. Thank you. I guess I want to ask you, what were some precursors to this work? I mean, were there books that inspired you or helped you in the difficult task of turning this long, courageous transformation into this beautiful memoir? I, too, have read a number of memoirs in recent years, <laughs> and I felt when I first began writing that I wanted to get a lay of the land, and so I read uh, probably all of the classic modern memoirs, some of which I read a number of times, everything from, you know, The Mirror of Magical Thinking to, I don't know, Angela's Ashes to This Boy's Life. Mm -hmm. I don't know why the caged bird sings. I also was very interested in family-oriented, probing fiction, books like Beloved. Mm -hmm. um, the things they carry, Tim O'Brien's kind of half memoir, half half novel about Vietnam, which I think is a wonderful book too. And mm -hmm. you mentioned confusion. I think the world of children we forget is very confusing. And I think we had the added burden, I think it's true for all children, of having left one society that was a complete information control uh, bubble of a society with its own lexicon, as they said, and its own mores and its own sort of power structure, and, and then went into the society at large, you know, which for us was East Oakland in the early 80s and then Berkeley and then, of course, Salem, Oregon. And, you know, we'd never eaten in a restaurant. You know, we'd never been in a car. We'd never seen kids that didn't have shaved heads. We'd never owned a toy. We'd never had Christmas. We'd never had a birthday. 
all these things were new and fascinating and weird. And immediately when I started writing the book, I sensed that I wasn't going to do it justice if I didn't allow the reader to share in the journey of confusion and discovery. So I very early on made the decision to allow for there to be some confusion on the part of the reader. So I think for the first 20 pages, you almost don't know what's happening as a reader. You're sort of like, what, where, where is this post-apocalyptic? What's happening? Right, right. There's some uh, magical realism. There's an unreliable narrator. The narrator is saying things that are clearly not true. I think the decision I made was that we, we tend to think of these things as the conventions of fiction. I don't agree. I think they're the conventions of identity. And fiction happens to use them because they're really effective. But that mm-hmm. we often see our worlds in terms of magical realism, particularly as children, but even as adults. This is why religion, totemic objects, these sort of things have such power for us, because we organize our identities around magical, realistic understanding of the world, because it simply feels that way. Also, you know, we are, in fact, the unreliable narrators of our own lives. And one of the major sort of themes or, let's say, ideas I was really trying to probe throughout the book is how we can come to believe things that are completely false about ourselves and others and so much of our journey towards the things we want in life, whether for me, academic success came fairly naturally. It was harder for me to have success in relationships and my eventual goal, which is I wanted to you know, be a father and a husband and be able to do the things that it, I think it's hard for orphan children to do. In order to get to that, the journey entailed unraveling what these falsities I'd been taught were So I thought, what better way to do that than to bring the reader upon this journey of confusion and discovery that I I also went on? It does exactly that, Mikkel. I mean, you're peeling away layer after layer of untruths Mm. as you move through the book. One of the things I love about it, and I think the best memoirs always do this, is that it's written from your life. It's out of your life. It's coming from the core of you. It's not merely about your life. Right. As a result, it becomes about our lives, mm-hmm. whether or not we ever were shaved-headed children in Synanon. Right. The inside story is the story of coming of age in a, a world of untruths, which is true mm-hmm. in some respect for all of us. The danger is to stand outside it as if there were some place to look from that's not your life and write about your life. And you're writing from your life, which is a a different orientation. I fully agree. I admire essayists, personal essayists and memoirs who do write from that perspective, right? The the kind of common trope of memoir is this kind of elegiac, you know, I'm in my 30s or 40s, maybe 50s, and here's what my life has been, or here's my sort of creation story. Right. I think some people are very effective at that. I just didn't think it would do my story justice because when I sat to write it, I did try that. And I, I wrote probably in two or three different voices before I decided on a voice. And one of them was that kind of elegiac perspective. And another was this kind of absurdist Vonnegut, you know, or maybe like still life with woodpecker type of thing about the right. modern world and ancient fish mm-hmm. and becoming the molecules of our beings and <laughs> Maybe Milan Kundera, you know, this whole thing about the inheritance of gestures, you know, the beginning of immortality, where it's like you're sort of talking about a character, but now you're talking suddenly about what created that character in this kind of ontological sense. So I had that voice as well, Mm -hmm. which was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And then I just tried this voice of just inhabiting the objects, inhabiting the rooms, inhabiting the the feelings and the senses and the sounds and trying to allow the the reader to do that. And then when I went back, I set it on a shelf for a month as I was instructed to do. 
<laughs> by other writers that I loved. Right. And I came back to it and that writing felt the most alive. And, and the part of me, Toni Morrison has this idea is you write the book you want to read. That was the book I wanted to read. I wanted to know how that book ended. Mm -hmm. What's the book that starts with this sentence? What's the book that starts with this chapter? I want to know how this book ends. Mm -hmm. and because it felt like, oh, here I'm already in a world. I don't have to describe a world. I, this is the world. And we, we're going to go through it together, you and I, reader. At one point, you describe your dad's wife, Bonnie, who was also your caregiver when you were very little in the orphanage called, mm -hmm. quote, unquote, the school at right. Synanon. Um, and you write that she had to live in the aftermath of an idea so big it imploded under its own weight, leaving everyone to start new lives in the wreckage it left behind. And that insight seems to apply to all of you, everyone in the book, Bonnie, your dad, mm -hmm. your brother, Tony, your mother, and you. Yes, that's true. This book has made, I think, for our family, a lot of things very, very clear that were sort of fuzzy and hazy. And I, what do they say? Writers are the end of a family. You know, <laughs> it hasn't really been the case for us. It's been right. actually kind of clarifying and good for us, right. I think. But my brother understood that really, really well. He and I used to always say, nobody understands but you what we went through and how it felt like we survived a plane crash. But I was also trying to write kind of of this ontological reality. That was sort of what happened with the 60s. That's what happened with Synanon. That's what happened with Vietnam, right. which are all sort of echoing in the background. There's a lot of Reagan and Nixon. And again, I know these are sort of things that you typically think of as novelistic or sort of in the world of fiction. But I think had Vietnam not happened, my mother would not have probably participated in the level of the free speech movement. She wouldn't have been the protester that she was. You know, she always said she went to Synanon because there were tanks on University Avenue. She said, you could smell the tear gas from the Grove. And if you can smell tear gas from the Grove, this society isn't working. It's time to start a new one. So, and I think particularly in the early 80s, people forget how much Vietnam was still hanging in the air. There were still all the homeless vets because Reagan had closed the mental institutions, walking the streets, and it, was, it hung heavy on us. And there was this sense, and I think maybe Reagan's election was it, or maybe I just experienced it this way because my parents were so heavily political, but that the hippies had lost and now, oh my God, the guy who's president is the same guy who tried to shut down the free speech movement. And here we are now, the idealistic society we invented crumbled, and now we're hiding in the rain from goons in Oregon, living on rabbit and government cheese, and Reagan is president. And I think there was just this sense of failed hopes and failed dreams. And that was something that I just remember growing up with. That was kind of in the background, you know, almost like, there was a watercolor. There was a sheen of blue on everything. And I felt that. And I didn't really contrast it, I think, until I got out of it. When I eventually moved to Los Angeles, lived with my father and Bonnie, who is my mother. I call her my mother. She's been with me my whole life. Mm -hmm. So she's earned the title. Then I realized life could be sunnier. <laughs> I didn't even know. You know, it's like growing up poor. You don't know you grew up poor because everyone around you is poor. You just sort of figure everyone knows you use the big rubbery five pound block of cheese for noodles and bread and don't try to eat it raw and you're fine. Yes, I ate my share of that growing up. Did you? Oh, God, I wasn't did. it just... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> if I had to describe the memoir in one adjective, I would use the word compassionate. Hmm. I just have this sense that particularly in understanding your mother's limitations and shortcomings and understanding why you did not get what you need from her, that the quest to understand is what opens all the doors to the rest of the world and trying to understand people. It was difficult to write about it. Those chapters, particularly about my mother's mental illness, were, were the hardest to write. Mm -hmm. It's weird. You'd think it'd be hard to write about 
being an orphan due to a political social experiment. But actually, you know, children are sort of, um, you know, everyone knows that you don't have power, you don't get to make choices. And to write about the complexity of, you know, I can love someone who I know wasn't good for me and still isn't good for me. And I can accept that if I can keep them at arm's length, I can see them as, you know, Mary Carr says, you want to see the most difficult people in your life as mm -hmm. God sees them which is with some forgiveness, but forgiveness isn't even quite the right word because you don't even need forgiveness. You can have love with an absence of forgiveness because forgiveness sort of requires an act on the part of the person who hurt you. And that's that's sort of getting into a dialogue that sometimes you just simply can't have, particularly with people who are mentally ill. Right. And I think that's the case with my mom. It's more a question of I can keep her at arm's length and appreciate who she is um, and accept also that in order to be someone who feels whole in my own life, I need to keep her at arm's length and still, you know, think it's kind of funny when I hear a, uh, an old folk song and think of her and our sing-alongs. And there are always these Woody Guthrie <laughs> union supporting uh, this machine kills fascists, you know, kind of. <laughs> I can find that charming, even as I realize right. that I can't really call her and share it with her. I just think this is a remarkable book. Thank you. Since we're quoting authors, Nabokov has this idea that what he's after is the sob in the spine of the artist reader. You know, the the sob meaning the convulsion, the tingle in your neck of the artist reader, someone who's really got the the goods and the motivation to pay attention. So, uh, you're an artist reader, Richard. I I really appreciate the artistry and your attention in reading, and it's really nice to be read by someone with such a deep understanding of all these issues. So, thank you. Well, thank you, Mikkel. And I've been listening to. The album Hollywood Park all week. I'm as enthusiastic about it as I am about the book. Uh, thank you. Hollywood Park is available for sale at bookshop.org. Thanks for listening to Extraordinary Beginnings. We'll end with music by Mikel Jolet from his new album, also entitled Hollywood Park. Carry me. Somewhere far away from the noise on this damn TV From the needle and the spoon in front of me